ever since we recorded Tuna and the Brian, I think we're, we're pretty much allowed to do whatever we want for the rest of our career because we've, we've achieved complete and utter strangeness. Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and today, don't get too excited because this is a repost, basically. Uh, As an update, this lockdown, I've been struggling to find time to do anything related to this podcast, as you might have noticed if you follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon, at Silverchair Podcast on everything. So, as a stopgap and as a show of goodwill, I thought I'd put this mini episode in the feed, which is just the tuna in the brine analysis from the first diorama episode. I noticed that those episodes are quite long, and the second one didn't get nearly as many listens as the first one, which makes me think that maybe there are some people out there that didn't even finish the first diorama episode. Um, And I think that Tuna in the Brine was at the end of episode one, and it's one of my favorite pieces of analysis I've done. So anyway, if you happened to not make it to the end of that episode and you missed the Tuna in the Brine talk, here is a nice 20 minute or so package that's easily digestible for your ears. And if you did hear it, well, here it is in a convenient little package for you if you happen to want to give it another listen. That's it from 2021 me. Let's pass it back to August 2020 me. Enjoy. Yeah, I, I, I recorded this one at home by myself, just with drum machine, a bass guitar, an acoustic guitar, and just laid up some vocals. And I called Paul and said, look, I've got this track. I, I'd really love you to play some piano on it. I found the keys to my heart when everyone's heart seems so With Tuna in the Brine, we've reached the midpoint of the album, and for some, we've also reached the apex of Daniel's songwriting. As Daniel says in that clip, with Tuna in the Brine, Silverchair achieved maximum strangeness. But how beautiful that strangeness is. This is up there as one of their very best songs, and one of the most amazing songwriting achievements. It's almost like a magic trick. My favourite track's still probably Tuna and the Brine, just because probably emotionally the feeling that we had from day one of demoing it to playing in the studio and then hearing it with Van Dyke and meeting Van Dyke and watching it be recorded. And it's just, you know, there is no other piece of music like it that I know of. Like Across the Night, Tuna in the Brine is a simple song that sounds complex, at least at its base. The chords underpinning it are all fairly standard. It does get complicated, though. Tuna in the Brine starts out in the key of C major, then halfway through changes key to F major, then changes again to B flat major. The chord progression A flat major to C major recurs a lot in this song. If we take the key of C major, those chords are actually an augmented fifth apart, giving the song a strange underlying feeling. 
So like I was saying, the opening chords that go from A flat to C major under the verse recur throughout the song and are actually the same chords under that climactic ending. However, the melody keeps changing, making it seem like a completely new thing. By the end, we've been brought back to the start, but changed. The chords here are the same chords here. The song has taken you on a complete journey, so by the time you get back to those chords, it just feels completely different. Genius. Structurally, this song is pretty amazing too. This time it doesn't just sound complex, it is complex, at least in terms of pop song structure. By my count, we have at least nine distinct sections. Section one, we have the first verse, I fondle keys, keys and the first half of the second verse, take everything that you're not. Section two, we have the second part of the second verse, making it its own part. You'll come along for the sun with that descending piano line. This section never repeats though, and it only goes for four bars. So we could call it a continuation of the second verse since the underlying chords are the same. But for the sake of clarity, I think it acts as a separate part. This section leads directly into section three. Section three, the bridge or pre-chorus that leads into the refrain, the light in my darkest hour is fear, don't lose your heart, you'll need it, part. Section four, we have the refrain, take another pill, which occurs twice, each with different instrumentation behind it. Section five, the second continuation of the bridge, which happens instead of going to the chorus. This is the, to lose your heart, you'll have to lie amongst your lies part. The part that goes into four, four. Section six, we have the first part of the middle section, the painting a lie part. Section seven, we have the second part of the middle section, the closer now part. This includes the busking for change part because even though the melody changes, the part underneath is still the same. And unlike section two, the two parts seem more tied together. That said, I will note that in the sheet music for this part, the closer now part is called bridge one and the busking for change part is called bridge two. So I can see an argument for them being considered separate especially since there is actually a key change in the middle of that section. Actually, screw it, let's just call it a separate section. Section eight. Section nine, 
we have the climax, the to all the animals who part. So even though we do technically hear a hooky chorus twice, that is at least eight or nine distinct parts of a song with variations within. It's simple in one way and massively complex in another. So here's something awesome. Back in the day, Silverchair's then functioning website released some of the stems, that is the individual tracks, to this song for a competition where fans could do a remix of the song. So for this song only, we have the ability to delve even further into the musical makeup. But I think this is instructional for how the rest of the songs on Diorama are built. Lining up the individual tracks on top of one another, which is harder than it sounds because none of the stems are the same length for some reason, you can see how the instruments weave in and out of the song, the only real constant being Daniel's voice and the acoustic guitar, which on the final mix is not as prominent as the other instruments, particularly the orchestra. And again, like on Across the Night, that acoustic guitar has a really DI feel with even a bit of clipping in it. In fact, looking at the guitar track, it's the one track that looks brick-walled with the least dynamic range. Listening to the stems, it's amazing how it all comes together because the vocal track is really the only single track where listening to it by itself gives you the full song. Every other instrument weaves in and out throughout the song. Every section needs the vocals to make it feel right. The orchestra is playing off the vocals and the piano. The piano is playing off the vocals and so on. So it's really a masterpiece that shows the genius of Daniel to know that it would all fit together. The unsung star of Tuna and the Brine though is Paul Max Piano. As an experiment, try to focus on what Paul's playing and you can hear much of what Van Dyke Parks ended up doing with his orchestrations. For example, I've rendered out a section of the song using just Daniel's vocals and Paul's piano. Listen. My best listen to Van Dyke Park's orchestration. In a major example, Paul's counter melody in the Closer Now part became a major theme in Van Dyke's arrangement. Here's Paul talking about that. He sort of had the chords um, and sort of would sing, uh, but I want a kind of Russian choir sort of vibe up the top and be so like... You know, that sort of thing. So I'd sort of try and make up a part that 
you know, described what he was trying to get out of his head. Evan Van Dyke took the, the dun, da, 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 the real thematic middle eight section, and, and Van Dyke was like, well, I'm, I'm, we're not going to top that line. We'll just make the stringers do that as well, and everything just branched off from there. Van Dyke took Paul's Russian choir piano line and built the arrangement around that. Listen with just Daniel's vocals and piano. Then with Van Dyke's arrangement. Then the finished product. final big bit and you've got this chord like which is you know like fucking who knows what which brings you out to the end you know and then the big triumphant outro and it's like you so you're just doing this on a guitar and a piano it's like yeah yeah keep going i'm almost with you i almost get it despite paul maybe not getting it right away his work becomes integral to the song My favourite part of what Van Dyke does in this song is actually that middle section, the painting a lie part, where the band basically drops out completely and it's just Daniel's voice and Van Dyke's orchestra. I have always loved the way Van Dyke has the string section respond to Daniel's voice in this part. Just before that middle section too, you have Van Dyke's horns creating what Daniel calls a Return of the Jedi-inspired part on the You'll Have to Take. Another thing you get from listening to these isolated tracks, if you didn't realise already, is how strong Daniel's voice is, especially when it comes to harmonising with himself. And to lose your heart, you have to lie amongst the lies, like tuna in the brine. And to lose your heart, and to By the way, during that part, the time signature briefly switches to 4-4 when the rest of the song is in 6-8, which was apparently Paul Mack's idea. Daniel was like, you're crazy for this one, Paul. So Daniel's harmonies are great, 
but he also uses his voice to create some eerie sounds on the song as well. For one, we get the temper temper part. I think this is where that Kate Bush influence from Nick Launay's musical education of Daniel really shows itself. On the diorama Great Australian Albums doc, Daniel also talks about using overlaid vocals to create a bee-like sound, which creates a really unsettling sound. Uh, we had these vocal things here. We tried to sound like bees. This is swarm of bees. I think it was about 12 tracks of the same note, just going, ah, and then get, you get one or two which waver off, off the note, so you go, ah, and you get this strange discordant thing that happens. I've isolated the vocal tracks for it here. For my pregnant pause, I'm changing anything. Ah. He did this B part live a lot when he played this song. He loved it. And while I've got the opportunity, let's just listen to how locked in Chris and Ben are here. They might be an underrated rhythm section because everything builds on top of them, not just on this song, but on this whole album. I'll also just point out that even though we do get two choruses, each time the actual phrase tuna in the brine is sung, it has a different melody. In fact, the phrase tuna in the brine appears four times in the song, and each time the notes are different. Listen to the differences across those four times. The first time, the first chorus, it descends down to a G. The second time, it goes up and down, landing on a C. The third time, it goes up and down again, but lands on an A. And the final time at the very end, it's almost the same notes as that third time, but the lead-in note is different, and the chu in tuna is an E-flat instead of an E. In addition, the final time it's sung is over an F minor, whereas every other time we've heard it, it's been against a major chord. Even when you think you've got this song's number, it changes on you. The song's about exposing yourself and allowing yourself to shine, so I was trying to think of a suitable metaphor and I was just sitting back thinking of what's really shiny and what is really well lubricated and looks really nice and packaged. Then I remembered opening a tuna can when I was little and being fascinated by how shiny the tuna were. From the rainbow on the album cover to the themes of opening up to a wider emotional range, this song is almost the thesis statement of the album. It's my time to shine like a tuna in the brine. Overall, as you just heard in that interview clip, the song thematically reflects the idea of becoming open to the world after coming off antidepressants that restrict your emotional input. 
Lyrically, this is one of the weirder songs on the album, but it all comes from a very genuine place. The metaphor is meant to be about coming out of your shell, shining like tuna in brine. A strange lyric, perhaps for a then vegan, especially since by the time tuna is in brine in a can, it's churned up and dead. Sometimes Daniel's metaphors weren't thoroughly thought through. I do like that the word brine is on the lowest note in the phrase. It's an example of something called text painting, which is where you write a melody that reflects the lyrical theme of the song. So, for example, having the word high on a high note. Stephen Sondheim does this a lot. So in this song, brine is the lowest note. Brine means the sea, sea is deep, lowest note, etc. Of course, in the context of this song, he's talking about brine in a can, but it's a cool idea. Anyway, if you thought that was a long bow to draw, just wait. Remember how on the Neon Ballroom episode, I talked about how much Daniel loves playing on words? Check it out. On Tuna in the Brine, we get pregnant pause, P-A-W-S, reinforcing the sort of animal theme of the song with tuna, animals sipping sweat, etc. And in terms of alliteration, we get feeble fables. We also get temper with, tampered with evidence. Also, and this might be stretching it, but stay with me, we get some assonance, which is basically alliteration, but repeating the vowel sounds instead of the consonants. In the main refrain, listen to the I vowels. Take another pill, tell another lie, lie amongst your lies like tuna in the brine. You can hear it, right? Let me stretch this out even further. In the closer now part, listen to the E vowels. Closer now than we ever have been. We are closer now than we ever should be. Closer now than we've ever been before. Been before is also alliteration. Closer to everything. All those E vowels. Also, as I mentioned earlier, Diorama doesn't have all that many rhymes in the lyrics. And in Tuna and the Brine, the first rhymes only occur at the very end. So first you've got busking for change and changing everything. Feeble fables aren't changing many things, which is really just rhyming a word with itself. So it doesn't really count. But then we get the thesis statement. It's my time to shine like a tuna in the brine. And that's the only true rhyme in the song which is what makes that section so powerful. The fact that it also includes the title of the song really adds to that power. I always think that choosing the title of the song and how it relates to when or even if it appears in the song is a really underrated part of songwriting. <sighs> okay, I'm done. Although I'm really serious about that song and that's the song I'm most proud of on the record, there's also an element of humour in that song which I haven't really explored before. There are times where I know it's ridiculous but I wanted to do it because it appealed to me. It's more an introduction to what I want to be doing in 10 years time. This podcast is written, produced, and performed by me, Daniel Hedger. All Silverchair music is owned by Murmur and 11 music publishers. 
A lot of the extra content from this episode comes from the Robert Hambling film Across the Night, The Creation of Diorama, and the SBS production Great Australian Albums Diorama. Once again, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends or your enemies if they like Silverchair. Rate, review, subscribe, follow me on social, email me, you know how by now. See you next time. Thank you.